This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is my great pleasure tonight to introduce our speaker for this evening, Dr. Clarissa Anderson. Clarissa Anderson is a biological oceanographer with expertise in ecological forecasting and remote sensing. After receiving her undergraduate degrees in biology and art history from UC Berkeley and a marine science PhD from UC Santa Barbara, she completed several postdoctoral appointments at NOAA and also at the University of South Carolina before transitioning to her research position at UC Santa Cruz. The majority of her research during those years focused on the prediction of HABs, that stands for harmful algal blooms. We're going to hear a lot of that tonight. And the toxins in estuarine and coastal ecosystems, as well as the fate and transport of HABs to the deep water environment. During her time as a research faculty at UC Santa, Santa Cruz, she worked to establish the California Harmful Algal, Al, Algae Re, Risk Mapping, CHARM it's called, system. She is now at right here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, directing the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System, SCUS, and continuing to conduct HAB research in coastal California. We are so very fortunate to have Clarissa here this evening for her talk entitled, Harmful Algal Blooms in Your Ocean and Why They Aren't All Red Tides. Welcome, Clarissa Anderson. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here on this amazing evening. Um, you'll probably notice I changed the title a little bit. There was a kind of a, a gloom and doom sound to the original title, and I think on this important date, I didn't want to um, leave us depressed. I think that I'm going to end this talk on a high note, um, although there will be some, some things that might you know, get your spider senses tingling a little bit as we go through. So first and foremost, I've already been introduced. Um, I'm the director of an organization here called SCUS, and I'll describe that a little more towards the end of my talk. So a lot of you are probably familiar with this term. For those of you that aren't, I want to clarify what the definition of a, of a HAB or an HAB really is. It's not very clear cut. It's a very societal term. Um, it doesn't really describe some cohesive evolutionary unit of organisms in the ocean. Um, it really just describes this diverse array of blooms or you know, high, highly dense aggregations of algae, either microscopic, that can be like seaweeds, or microscopic, like phytoplankton, that can cause detrimental effects. So anytime you see some sort of a negative effect from an algal bloom, we call it harmful. And so this discussions of harmful algae, which may or may not be red tides, they may, they're, they're not tidally driven, they may or not be red, and they may or not be harmful, even if they're red. Um, these descriptions of what we generally call red tides in the media go back to antiquity. Um, you can look back at the Old Testament and see descriptions of the waters turning to blood as the first plague of the ten plagues in Exodus. Um, and this is an interesting thing. People have discussed it a lot, hypothesized, you know, if... Um, I suppose if you're not a true believer and don't believe that it's really blood, you've got all kinds of scientific hypotheses about what might drive the water to turn red. Um, and if you look at this quote directly and take it literally that the fish were dying in the Nile, um, a lot of hypotheses have been put forth. And one of those original ones was that this was an anthrax bacterial episode, a bloom, so to speak, of bacteria in the Nile. 
And then later people came along and they said, no, you know, this is really um, this emerging dinoflagellate that we're learning a lot about called Phaisteria pisicida, which is this fish-eating dinoflagellate. It actually sticks out its little peduncle into the fish and eats them, or at least so we think, and leaves this bloody morass in the water. So, so the thought was, okay, this would make some sense. We see it in rivers in the southeast here in this country. Maybe it came along and it did this. Um, and this wasn't, the Bible's not the only book to sensationalize red tides, if that's the case. Rodney Barker in the 90s came along and described um, pretty dramatically the, the discovery of Phaisteria in the southeast and, and how that came to um, then lead to a bunch of blooms all along the east coast. This is during the 90s. A lot of you might remember Phaisteria hysteria, especially if you lived anywhere in the Chesapeake Bay region or on the east coast. Um, there were a number of blooms that got people pretty freaked out. And then it sort of subsided, and unlike what the book is telling you here on its cover, um, this didn't become the ultimate biological threat. It was, it was an episode, and there may have been um, something that was causing those blooms to happen for a little while, but then it died down, and we're still not sure we understand the biology fully of that organism. So here locally, um, you're probably accustomed to seeing red tides, maybe not from aerial photos. This is the iconic image of a of a red tide right off, off the pier here. And you can see it in these two images, this amazing spatial distribution of this bloom and how you can see the color of the red relative to the ambient color in the water. And again, these are the same blooms that um, you'll see bioluminesce when the waves crash. That turbulence activates the dinoflagellates and causes the bioluminescence. And if, I'm sure you are all well acquainted with the infinity cube um, exhibit right behind me. That was a collaboration between a scientist and artist, and that scientist is Mike Latz here at Scripps, who dedicated his career to understanding bioluminescence. So there's you know, some amazing wonders that come out of red tides. Um, this is some imagery of some other red tides around the world, one in the Netherlands and one in Denmark. And I would just say, you know, what jumps out at you with these two images relative to the other ones? I think you're paying attention. They're not red. Um, and so this is, this is sort of the first problem, you know, and I didn't um, go into this in depth, but when it, when it comes to um, the hypotheses that were put forth, to, forth about the, uh, the ten plagues of Egypt, there have been some biblical scholars who have come around and said, well, no, look, it, this, this, is, this can't be connected to algae, because one, algae are green, and two, you know, these Niles, the Nile River sediments were red, um, and then we've got some other, how could any of this really contribute to make a red tide because these green algae can't make a red tide? And by the end of this description, you'll understand that all of those things are actually false. In this case, we can refute each one of those. When it comes to the red tides we see locally, those are usually lingulodinium polyhedrum that you see up there on the left. Um, and then porocentromycans and, and many species of serratium are common red tide formers in California. And these are all dinoflagellates. They're all part of their own phylum, dinoflagellata. Um, if you remember back to biology when you had to learn, you know, dear King Philip, yada, yada, um, <laughs> kingdom phylum, <laughs> class order, family, genus, species. This is a, a high-level group, right? Um, so dinoflagellates are connected in this sort of evolutionary unit, and they're not red algae. Red algae are their own group of, of, of usually seaweeds, the rhodophyta. So they, are, they, they describe a totally different group um, that does not include the dinoflagellates. So what color are the cells? What is imparting this red color that we're often seeing? And the logical question, is there something special about these dinoflagellates that would make the water red? And so I don't want to horrify you with these plots. We're going to walk through them. Um, but this is 
work from a brilliant colleague of mine, Heidi Dearson, who um, published some really fun modeling that is going to, I think, expose what we're trying to get at here. So these are a spectra of the absorption of light by various species of algae, and that's relative to chlorophyll, the dominant pigment that they contain, because all photosynthetic organisms, algae, phytoplankton, cyanobacteria, land plants, they all have chlorophyll, and they use that to photosynthesize. So you're looking at the visible portion of the electrolyte magnetic spectrum here from blue to red, um, going from left to right. And what you're seeing here, because this is normalized to chlorophyll, but you're seeing the dominant absorption response of the chlorophyll in all of these plots, even though they're from different species of dinoflagellates in this case. And the chlorophyll absorbs in the blue, and then, and then the red, as you can see on the left and the right, you've got these peaks, and then it reflects back in the green. That's why we see green for the most part, when we look at trees and leaves. So on the right um, is the same sort of plot, but with many different groups, higher level um, evolutionary groups of phytoplankton. Uh, don't get bogged down in the names, but we've got a lot of things up there, uh, including Prochlorococcus, the one at the top. That's a very ancient cyanobacteria that is responsible for like ancient oxygen production in the ocean. And then you'll see Dinophyce, um, a little bit of a, maybe a misnomer here because it's, it's written more as a class, but those are the dinoflagellates in black. And dinoflagellates do contain a very unique pigment that we do use to, to identify them in some cases, and that's peridinin. But peridinin doesn't seem to do anything that is special when it comes to red reflectance. Here you're looking at the absorption, and you'll see that the, the, the slope of that curve is pretty flat or shallow on that black line between 470 and 555 nanometers. And what that's showing you is that there's nothing there to indicate that we should have a lot of red reflection. We should have a much more skewed to the green absorption spectrum here for peridinin if we were going to see something red that was related to a red tide. So what's interesting is in this plot also is that the blue line, which is the, di the diatoms, it says Bacillaria physi up there, those are the diatoms, a dominant group of phytoplankton here in the ocean, almost indistinguishable from the dinoflagellates in that plot. So you're probably already getting a sense that it's kind of hard optically to tell some of these things apart. So if you continue to, to explore this and do the modeling that Heidi Dearson did, she showed that really it's the effect of high chlorophyll biomass on the color of water, which is why we're seeing the red color that we see. So when we talk about biomass, we're often measuring it in terms of how much chlorophyll that we can see in the ocean, either remotely or with some sort of a fluorescence meter. And when algae start growing in high abundance, they have a lot of chlorophyll. And it really, almost any group up here except the first two, chlorophyce and chlorochlorococcus, can be red when the chlorophyll is high enough. So that chlorophyll is absorbing very high, highly in the blue and green, and that shifts incrementally the spectrum that we see, the reflectance or the backscatter out of the water into the red wavelengths. So we're seeing red as a result of that chlorophyll absorption. And then there's a little more to it. It's, it's not just that that's what's going on and that a dense culture of phytoplankton might look red, but it's, it's a function of our human visual system. So we've got three cones in our eyes, the red, the green, the blue, and there's our different sensitivities to those wavelengths, as you can see in this plot. It's pretty simple. Um, and there's a lot of overlap between where sort of the peaks of sensitivities are for the green and the red cone. 
they're really more towards the yellow. And then when we, the light that's incident on our eye with each photon is how much of that we see is sort of a combination of how it hits those cones and then the contrast or the, sort of the comparison. Um, there's this little kind of um, almost a rules-based approach that has to go on here to get to the light that we, we'd see as each photon hits our retina. So when you put it all together, uh, you get this heightened sensitivity to yellow that all humans have unless you have some, maybe some blue-yellow color blindness in which you lack the blue cones or if you're red-green color blind, you lack the red cone. But this, this sort of interesting point is critical for the way that we see a red tide. This is a very similar plot to what I just showed you, but with those sensitivity curves scaled to the same range. And we have what's called, what Heidi refers to as a critical hinge point, where the green and the red cones are stimulated at the same level, around 570 nanometers. And so what we're seeing is, is little tiny changes right around that hinge point lead to large changes in the color that we see. So we're seeing these, these large changes that often come at us as red based on this, this hinge point. And so if we go back to the original story from the Bible, um, was it really an algal bloom that caused the Nile to turn red? Hopefully I've shown you that, one, you don't... Well, first of all, dinoflagellates aren't green algae, um, and they do have chlorophyll. There are groups like, pro, like chlorophytes that are more green, um, and it doesn't matter even if they were green algae because almost all of these groups are capable of producing red color in the water. So it really comes down to our perception. And then we have to think about what do the satellites see? Um, and these gray bars in the plot are telling you where the bands are that are, are, are most of our what are called multispectral ocean color satellite sensors see when they look at the water. And they're getting that reflectance off the water. And we're only measuring in certain bands. There's a huge gap here. Between 550 and 680, there's a huge gap. There's no, there's no sensing going on between those, those bands. So we're missing not only where red tides peak in terms of their reflectance, which is like around you know, 570, somewhere in that range, um, which is the same as this hinge point um, where green and the red cones absorb almost equally, but we're now not really able to sense a lot of these red tides or discriminate all of these different phytoplankton blooms from one another using these pretty um, common sensors. In fact, the workhorse that I'm gonna get at is MODIS. And this is the Moderate Resolution Imaging Spectroradiometer on the Aqua satellite launched by NASA in 2002. It's truly been the work workhorse of, of my field, getting to know phytoplankton on a synoptic scale in the ocean and it's well exceeded its expected lifespan. Um, it's, we're still collecting data, and these are the kinds of things you can see. It's, it's, it collects an entire image of the Earth every two days, um, creating these swaths that can be then pieced together in this kind of um, mosaic that you see here. So this is from spring 2014. And what you might notice is that there are patches of red all along the coasts. You look at California, you can see a lot of red. That indicates a lot of phytoplankton blooms over the course of that time. These are hot spots of phytoplankton. But what this sensor has a harder time doing, even when we applied a lot, a lot of algorithms to it, is discriminating certain things along the coast. What kinds of blooms are they? When there's a big runoff event, you have a lot of sediment. It gets confounded with, with the chlorophyll, and it, it looks a lot like that when it backscatters into space. So we have 
problems. And we need to start to look forward to the next generation of sensors, which are the hyperspectral sensors. So these are the ones that fill in all those gaps, little 10 nanometer or less slices across that visible spectrum. And people have likened this to going from black and white TV to color TV and our ability to actually see things and, and look at the nuances. Um, we had some experimental sensors that NASA launched um, in 2000, like Hyperion, and then HICO, which is the hyperspectral imaging for the, for the coastal ocean, imager for the coastal ocean, which is on the International Space Station. That has been another amazing proof of concept satellite sensor that has given us you know, an incredible understanding of how we should be doing hyperspectral science. That died in 2014. It had a big radiation blast. Obviously, we haven't gotten anything out of it since then, but prior to that, there was one image per orbit, so it wasn't, and the science team would direct it at a particular event that was happening at that time. So it was able to collect a lot of great data. I'm going to give you some little slices here that you can see better. Um, just how beautiful the imagery is and how resolute it is. You can really see some incredible blooms, like the Lake Erie bloom in Ohio there on the right. And then on the far right is Tiburon, California. It's hard to see from the back what these locations are. Uh, but that's giving you a subtle view of the different kinds of uh, the variability of the phytoplankton, um, the stirring and mixing that's going on right off the coast. And then even more so, if you apply certain algorithms to that HICO imagery, um, what you're going to get is on the far right, the, the, far two, the far right panels, you're going from the chlorophyll to actually saying, what is a dinoflagellate? What's a red tide in this image? And so those little tiny blips up in the north of Monterey Bay near Santa Cruz are the actual red tide. And this is something you can do with a hyperspectral sensor. You can't do this with our, our workhorse MODIS. And Hesperi is the, the next mission. It was supposed to be launched in 2013. It gets pushed out again and again. It's now back to 2022. Um, funding interest is just lacking, but I just would argue here that what is so cool about this is our ability, if we could put Hesperia up, which would be a truly, um, truly next generation sensor that can get the kind of routine measurements that we need of the coastal ocean, we could look at the stuff synoptically from space all the time in a monitoring sense. So I'll take you back to those plots um, about before, before, but this time it's not absorption, it's the reflectance off the water. And just focus on the, the, these two images on the right. And we'll get back to this, this idea that diatoms and dinoflagellates um, look a lot alike optically. So what you're seeing are all the, ref the, the actual view that a satellite would see um, off the water, and these are the, the peaks, the spectral peaks. Um, but these two groups, these dinoflagellates and diatoms, are our two big bloomers in California. And we cannot discriminate them optically. So it's really hard for us to then, say from a management perspective, if we wanted to know what these algae are up to, um, get at this routinely and synoptically. And we want to do that. Um, and there are reasons for doing this. Um, one of those is that there actually are some very harmful species out there. We haven't talked about them yet. I've been talking about these benign red tides, so to speak, like lingulodinium that bioluminesce. But actually, some of these groups are... Um, a little bit terrifying. One of those is dinophysis on the left. This is a dinoflagellate that leads to diuretic shellfish poisoning. Um, I probably don't need to describe the symptoms given the name, uh, the dominant symptom anyway. It's, it's from a toxin called acidic acid. It's a very potent toxin. Alexandrium is another one um, that's heavily monitored. This is a chain-forming dinoflagellate, so those are four cells in a chain. 
and it leads to paralytic shellfish poisoning. It has a lot of the same symptoms as diuretic shellfish poisoning at the outset, but it can lead to um, full paralysis of your respiratory system, and that's caused by saxitoxin. And then um, the one most near and dear to my heart is pseudonychia, and what you're seeing there is roughly six cells of pseudonychia. This is a chain-forming diatom. So this is not a dinoflagellate. This is the first diatom I'm going to discuss with you. And these are special organisms. They produce a shell that is silicon dioxide. That's opal. So this is when we talk about um, massive blooms of phytoplankton in the ocean, and we talk about carbon sequestration in the, in the ocean. It's diatoms that are doing that. So these guys are growing. They often flocculate, create what's called marine snow, and they sink to the, the bottom of the ocean into the sediments. And then eventually, evolutionarily, once those sediments come back up through uplift, we have opal. So um, they're a very unique thing. If you have ant problem, but I, please, please say I'm not the only one. Give me a show of hands. Who's <laughs> dying from the ant plague right now? So you probably spread diatomaceous earth around, which is what we've been doing. Again, thank a diatom. But this particular one is the only toxic group. So this genus Pseudonychia has um, what's getting up to about 19 species that we know of now that are capable of producing domoic acid. And this toxin leads to amnesic shellfish poisonings. There's only about four really well-defined shellfish poisoning syndromes. I've already discussed three. These are three that can happen in California. And how do they stack up relative to other well-known venomous or toxic organisms out there? You might be surprised. Uh, saxitoxin is very toxic. It's even in our, our nation's arsenal of biological warfare agents. Um, Ocadaic acid is up there with the brown recluse. And then there's domoic acid, pretty benign. It's only like a rattlesnake in terms of its lethal dose. Um, but it's turned out to be the one that we really do now worry a lot about in California. It's becoming the big problem. Even if these others are out there and we want to monitor for them because they could be very deadly, um, the one that is a routine issue is really domoic acid. And you might have been aware of this this spring because it was in the media a lot that we had this massive bloom throughout Southern California that led to a lot of strandings of sea lions. Um, there were a lot of animals affected, dolphins. We had some dolphins um, strand here in San Diego. But this was all the way from Santa Barbara to, to Baja. And there were Guadalupe fur seals and endangered species stranding, elephant seals, grebes, common murres, brown pelicans. Actually, the list goes on, and it was quite extensive. And there was even a significant shellfish closure, or at least a, a very significant advisory in LA County as a result of this. So what is domoic acid? Let's just backtrack a little bit and get into um, understanding why it's toxic. This is what it looks like, if that means anything to you. Um, and then it also, maybe not obviously, but it does structurally have um, quite a lot of similarities to glutamic acid, which is glutamate. Um, enough similarities that it binds to the same receptors. And, and so what is glutamate? Well, you probably know of it as an amino acid. It's a non-essential amino acid, meaning it's one of the ones we make ourselves. I mean, and so we're not reliant on it from food, which are the essential amino acids. It's an incredibly important neurotransmitter. It regulates a lot of stuff in the neural system and then is important for neural communication, memory formation, learning, and regulates a lot of these neural processes. Um, so what's interesting here is that the way that domoic acid harms us or any vertebrate is through excitotoxicity. So it's binding to those same receptors as glutamate. If you consume too much glutamate, you could have the same problem. In fact, a lot of neurodegenerative diseases in humans, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, they are often a result of this sort of excitotoxicity of glutamate. 
Glutamate's also awesome. I mean, it's what gives you the umami flavor in food. It's, you know, it's what's in an MSG, if you like that. So it has its, its role, but like everything, at high dose, it can be too toxic. And domoic acid looks enough like it that it, it acts in the same way in the body, but if you're eating a lot of it, if you're a sea lion swimming around eating a ton of anchovies laden with domoic acid, you are going to have this excitotoxic effect, which is a neuro, so it's a neurotoxin. But I will make the distinction here. It's not related to ocean acidification. It gets its name because it is an amino acid, not because it is acidic. It doesn't change the pH of the ocean. It has nothing to do with the changes in the lowering of the pH that's caused by greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So the way that this got put on the map, this really all started in 1987 when um, three people died, although there were a lot of acute cases, um, from eating blue mussels from Prince Edward Island in Canada. And it was a big mystery, and a lot of people came together, chemists, biologists, epidemiologists, to try to unravel the mystery, and they were able to connect the dots back to this diatom in the water, which at the time they called nichia, but they realized, okay, so this is what's producing this toxin, domoic acid. They identified the toxin, and then they even described the syndrome for the first time, amnesic shellfish poisoning. And then we flash forward to 1991 in Monterey Bay, and there was a massive mortality of brown pelicans and cormorants. And biologists were scratching their head until they started doing the necropsies, and they realized that the stomach contents were laden with domoic acid, and there was just nothing but pseudonychia cells in the stomachs. And in here it was pseudonychia australis. This is the most toxic species of pseudonychia out there. And they, and they, and they had all were sort of aware of what had happened in Canada, and they put it together, and they said, this is the same thing we saw in Canada. This is the first time we're seeing it in California, and it was the first documentation, at least in the literature, of this sort of an event outside of Canada. But wait a second, let's go back to the 60s, because there was something that happened in the Santa Cruz Sentinel when seabirds were acting quite odd, dropping out of the sky, hitting people's cars, um, they were disoriented, and this is what this neurotoxin does to animals. It causes them to be disoriented. It's why when you see the sea lion strand, they are bobbing and weaving, and they're having seizures. Uh, their hippocampus is getting atrophied. So these birds, probably the same thing was happening. Um, there's been a lot of spec... It, wasn't even, it was speculation for a long time that that's what was happening here until some people went back and looked at the archive samples and realized that, indeed, there was a lot of domoic acid in the water at the time. Um, this was also happening in Sonoma at the time near Bodega Bay. I don't think there's any relation because I think that ravens actually do do this sometimes. And I'm not sure why, but I don't ever want to see it. I, there, there have been recent reports in the UK of something similar happening where ravens were plucking the eyeballs out of sheep and lambs, and it just sounds gruesome. Um, so hopefully you'll sleep tonight. Uh, so then... Hitchcock said, you know what, I read this story, and yes, this in fact is the reason I was inspired to go back and make the birds. Um, and so two years later, it came out, and, and people loved to make this association that really this domoic acid has this lineage and this legacy in Hollywood. Um, but what was happening, if that happened in the 60s and that was domoic acid, where, you know, where's the record? Why didn't we know about this? So is it new or is it old? Uh, there was not a lot of monitoring to be had to look at to know. Uh, we had no idea until we realized that we had put these really cool things about 150 meters below the surface called sediment traps, um, kind of drawn here as a yellow comb, but you can see them in the photo. They're quite large. Um, and we, you place them in, in the sort of the middle depths and in the, in the deep depths of a place like Santa Barbara Basin and the Santa Barbara Channel where there's not a lot of oxygen down there in the really narrow um, sort of 
deep part, and so you don't have a lot of turnover the sediments. You don't have a lot of biology down there, so it's a great place to do geological work. A lot of paleo-oceanographers have worked in that system. So these sediment traps were really there to understand things like how much opal gets into the sediments, those kinds of questions. We never thought, can we study harmful algal blooms with these sediment traps? But because they had been there for quite some time, we had a lot of archive samples. We, we, we got together and did some, um, what turned out to be really complex chemistry, but were able to extract that extract the cells, actually, of Pseudonychia from the sediment traps and also from sediment cores, but then also get the demoic acid signal back and look at that. And here's what, what came out of that. This is a plot showing you a time series from 1993, and this one just ends in 08. We've extended it further. The pattern is the same. It's a pretty dramatic pattern. I hope you realize. This is Pseudonychia. So these are the cells of Pseudonychia, and then also the flux, meaning how quickly they were sinking into these traps. So pretty obvious pattern, but there's a big dividing line there right around 2000. We didn't have a lot of data um, kind of around the El Nino and just before this, this, this maybe regime shift, if you want to call it that, but um, there's a pretty clear pattern that there were, there were very few blooms before, but then a lot of blooms after, and they were big blooms. Same thing for demoic acid. This is the time series from 93 to 99. You're seeing that there was some demoic acid happening here and there. Um, when you look at the next um, part of that, that decadal time series, what you're seeing is a lot more demoic acid. The scale has now shifted. It's gone from 200 max to 600 max in this case. So blooms were not only happening more frequently after 2000, but they were getting a lot more toxic. So the toxins, and we continue to measure more toxin all the time. So now we'll flash forward to 2015 when we had, I guess if we wanted to call something the bloom of doom, it would have been this bloom. And it was, you couldn't avoid it in the media. It was from Santa Barbara to Alaska. Maybe you didn't know about it down here because things were beautifully calm down here. But from Santa Barbara to Alaska, there was um, a really dramatic event associated with the blob, the Pacific Warm Anomaly that was from roughly 2014 to 2016, which only changed with the, un, the, the coming of the, the El Nino. And this closed down the Dungeness crab fishery all along the West Coast. In California, it was closed for the entire season. We had $60 million in losses, and this was because the crabs were highly intoxicated with demoic acid. Um, it stole Christmas for a lot of people. If you live in Northern California, it turns out crab is really a crucial part of your Christmas celebration. Um, I was never part of that tradition, but I, it really became... Um, I mean, people had pitchforks out. It was bad, because I lived in Santa Cruz at the time, and, and, this, and there's a lot of people who rely on this at that time. And you can see, you know, the owner of Phil's Fish Market is despondent. It wasn't just the shellfish, fisheries, lobster crabs, rock crabs, but there were a lot of marine mammals affected all along the coast. We had some of the first strandings, I think, ever of sea lions in Washington from zomoic acid. Um, all the way up in Alaska, there were, there were strandings, many, many whales they had a lot of demoic acid in their system. I think it's tough with marine mammals sometimes to say what was the coup de gras that killed them, but in this case, it was pretty clear that a lot of these fin whales had died of demoic acid. I want to make sure you realize those are grizzly bears feeding on that fin whale. It's not a very... Re the, the resolution of this photo is pretty bad, so they took it off the web, but um, it was a dramatic event. Uh, you know, nothing... We'd never seen anything like this before, and not only... Was it geographically extensive and lasted for five months? But 
we saw some of the highest concentrations of domoic acid we have ever seen. I would say the highest, um, certainly what we've ever measured. And these were off the Humboldt coast, um, off an area called Trinidad. When I started working on these Sudnichia blooms in graduate school, uh, we, thought, we decided that our threshold for a bad domoic acid event was 500 nanograms per liter. So I want you to just take stock of that number. It's 100,000 nanograms per liter. I mean, how many orders of magnitude higher are we now? So something is going on, and I'm not going to use this talk to get into that. It's, we, could, we, could, we could probably make that a, a series of lectures. Um, but the regulatory limit is 20 parts per million, and these are all the levels that we were seeing in a huge range of animals throughout the food web that we sampled to see how much domoic acid there was, and it was quite high. There were closures of pretty much everything, including anchovies and sardines. A lot of losses, I already told you that. Governor Brown requested federal assistance. So let's go back to that reflectance. We cannot discern dinos and diatoms. We really want to. We want to know when these diatoms are blooming, and we want to know when they're pseudonychia. So how do we do this? Our workhorse, MODIS, can't do it. How else do we do this synoptically? We can't be measuring the whole ocean all the time. It's so expensive. It's so time-consuming. The people power. It's hard. So we set out to figure that out. It was many years of work, but we found a workaround to sort of distinguish these blooms without really using the, um, the optics. So, yeah, because we really can't. And what we found is that if we take models, models that operate a lot like weather models in the ocean, but these circulation models that can give us the physics and the circulation, combine that with everything that we do get from satellites, because we get so much information, there's no reason to throw it away. We're getting a lot of chlorophyll information, information about all these different um, reflectance data from at different wave bands. Um, but if you can find a way to throw all that in a bucket and use it in a statistical way, kind of like a neural network, um, you might get some sort of statistical or predictive power out of that, and we were able to do that. So this is a schematic showing you what I just described. Uh, you have a, a, a physical model, which is the regional ocean model system in this case, that gives you things like temperature, salinity, gives you ocean currents. And then you have the MODIS data from the aqua satellite that gives you chlorophyll and reflectance. And then if you have enough data from sampling over a long period of time to know what those things look like in the water at the same time that the harmful algae are there, now you have statistical power and you can make a prediction about the bloom. And you can also do it in a spatially... Um, relevant way so that people can look at a map. It's not, it's a lot like turning on the, the weather and seeing the hurricane forecast. It's not just um, what happened right here at one spot off Scripps Pier. And so here's kind of the punchline there. This is the sea harm system uh, that Harry described at the beginning. You're seeing the risk of a pseudonychia bloom, and then you're also seeing the risk of high levels of domoic acid. And this is for 2015, the year that I told you was so terrible. You're seeing the formation of these high domoic acid um, like cells and eddies off the coast where a lot of the animals were actually acquiring the, the toxin at the time. And these are currently put out routinely. We put these out daily on the Senkus website. So this is our sister organization. I'm at SCUS. Senkus is um, housed up at Ambari. That's the central and northern Cal California ocean observing system. And they help us keep these going, but we're actually transitioning this model to a routine operation at NOAA. So it will become a NOAA HAB bulletin where you could go on the NOAA website and see some of this, um, some of this imagery. We don't typically put it out as an animation, but you can go daily and see the risk maps. Managers use it. We have shellfish growers using it, marine mammal resource managers. And SCUS 
here at Scripps, we do the sampling along the coast, too, at various sites that you can see uh, on the map here, where we do weekly monitoring to find out what is actually in the water just off the piers, right, in the, right close to shore. You can go and you can download the data that you might want for any of those piers for a whole suite of HAB species, for domoic acid. So this has been really helpful. It helps us validate the model, but it helps us know what is happening very close to shore, which is very important for shellfish growers. The model is a little bit different. It's really giving you um, a sense of what's happening offshore. So I want to go back to that spring 2017 example because this was an interesting uh, test for the model, for the Seaharm system, where you had all these animals stranding. It was, it was a pretty large event, but there was a little bit of a disconnect as to what was happening near shore. So this is what those maps look like, and you can see the, a lot of the red and the yellow showing high domoic acid probability in our area, in the Southern California Bight. And around April 1st is when the onset of the event was. There was a lot of upwelling that probably started the bloom. Animals started to strand. Um, and the toxins at the pier spiked at around April 3rd in Newport Beach. So we first knew about this as kind of an LA event. And then at May 17th, the halves started to move south and also north into Santa Barbara Channel where it got very bad and there were impacts felt near San Diego and it persisted into the channel. And then also further north, there were some other interesting th things going on with the rock cab fishery. But here what we saw was we really got to see that offshore extent. In fact, I'm not showing you all the imagery leading up to this, but we got to see that bloom forming offshore, and the marine mammals were already starting to strand. They're kind of sentinel organism for knowing that something is happening. Um, but later, once we started to look at all the domoic acid data for all of these nearshore stations at Scripps Pier, all the way up to Cal Poly, we really would not have gotten the same picture that something terrible was happening. We saw some high concentrations of domoic acid, but nothing like what these maps show you. So without this kind of a tool, we would have no idea what was happening offshore or, know, or quite understand where these animals are acquiring the bulk of the toxin. Later in the summer, um, further north, off the coast of San Luis Obispo, there was a whole other stranding event, and this time it was very big. So we had to take a look at this. The prediction map was pretty clear that something was happening off the coast. Um, you can see some other boluses of things happening elsewhere, which ordinarily I'd say, I don't know, the model just could be wrong. But there was a cruise of opportunity put on by the Northwest Fisheries Science Center, at least sampling Pseudonychia, and I got a little glimpse of what that looked like. Really hard to see. I'm sorry the map is so small. But if you can make out the red dots on the map on the far right, you're seeing pockets of high pseudonychia. They do align quite well with where the high domoic acid is in this model. And then this, this red box is showing you the, the coast off of San Luis Obispo, where there were high pseudonychia here. They weren't sampling domoic acid. But it was a nice validation, at least in this case, that this was true. So this is what was happening offshore. All these sea lions, they're clearly getting the domoic acid. They're getting it from somewhere. And if you believe the model, then they're getting it offshore. But if you were to look at Cal Poly Pier and where we were measuring, we really weren't seeing a lot of domoic acid, but what we were seeing was something different. I was a little confused because it took a while for the data to come in and I was getting people, reporters calling and saying, why are sea lions stranding and why are there dead fish on the beach? And my mind was exploding because I don't connect those things usually. Um, even when fish have a lot of domoic acid, that doesn't usually kill them. It can make them swim a little funny, but it's, it's typically it doesn't affect them in any way. It doesn't cause them to wash up in large numbers on the beach, and it certainly doesn't cause a stench. It's not really an odor to those blooms. 
So it took a while for all the data to come in, but what we did then see at Cal Poly Pier is there, there was no pseudonychia, there was no demoic acid, but there was a lot of coclodinium polycricoides, which is a well-known fish killer. It's a red tide former, it's a dinoflagellate, and we know it kills fish, we have no idea how, we don't even know what the toxin is if it's a toxin. But then I talked to my colleagues at Cal Poly who were out on cruises and they had all kinds of dissolved oxygen sensors in the water and they said, oh no, 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 no. There's, this is a hypoxic event, that's what's killing the fish. There's no oxygen out there right now. We don't know why, maybe it's an upwelling event bringing low oxygen waters to the surface, but we still have no idea what was going on. We really don't know what killed the fish, it could have been both. Um, and I guess maybe that's the punchline here, is that there are a lot of things going on at the ocean at once and it's really hard for us to tease them apart. So I'm gonna sort of wrap it up here by saying the ocean is complex and there are multiple stressors happening in unison. Doesn't mean that we should go home and you know, crawl in bed, pull the blanket over our, our heads, but there's clearly a lot happening. We can do something about it, and that's why we've, we've set out to do this, to create this tool. I thought this cartoon was funny because it really underscores how much we need an early warning for some of these things. We have tsunami warnings. We've got great hurricane warnings. So when it comes to biology, we're still, we're still in our infancy and we're working on it. And so this model is one way to get at that, to get at the biology. Um, the director of the of veterinary science at Pacific Marine Mammal Center really, really likes this tool. He said for him, it is forewarned, it's forearmed. And I, and, I, and I appreciate that. I think the more we learn, the more we can maybe not change the path we're on. I think some tipping points have been crossed, to, to be perfectly blunt. But we can mitigate things and we can be prepared and we can find solutions um, for how to deal with them. So with that, I want to thank you. We have a lot of funding that's gone into all the work I've shown today. NASA, NOAA, um, SCUS is part of the U.S. Integrated Ocean Observing System. That is a NOAA office. And of course, Scripps. So thank you. Yeah, how can you actually mitigate it even if you do know something's happening? Uh, I guess the mitigation comes a lot in, um, if, you, if you're a resource manager, so you know, I put up that example of um, the Marine Mammal Center liking this product. So one of the, the groups that has given us some great testimonials since we put out a tool like this are the people who need to then deploy resources to figure out where the animals are going to strand. They also use it in sort of a, a historical way to go back and say, where do we think the animals most likely acquired this? Because it helps, as they're trying to unravel the science of the strandings, it helps them to have something like that because um, they can't do it with just a, a satellite image of chlorophyll and they can't do it with just a pure sample of water. So that's one way. Um, shellfish growers like having, we can only give them a three-day warning with this, this product, so it's not, it's not great but they like having some sense of when they might need to pull their product out because in the case of shellfish, you've got a bunch of stuff in the water. You can actually pull it out before it becomes toxic and not lose all that product. You can move it to a different patch of water. You can, you can do things like that. So those are the, some of the ways. Um, it's not perfect. It'd be better just not to have this stuff at all. Um, and I don't think we can get rid of it. When it comes to freshwater harmful algae, there are a lot of ways people mitigate. They put things like um, barley straw on the water and cause the bloom to flocculate the cyanobacteria around the, the barley and sink out of the system. But these aren't things that are very easy to do in the coastal ocean. The question is whether there's a, a link between water quality and some of these blooms. There's no direct link you know, around here between, say, a demoic acid event 
and air quality. Um, you could look at it in terms of the pollution of different forms of nutrients that come offshore. We've made a lot of these connections, so there is that. Um, some parts of the, the, the globe, I'm thinking Chesapeake Bay, there's a lot of work going into nitrogen deposition from urban zones and how that might fuel blooms. And then if you go to Florida, where there's a, a dinoflagellate called Karenia brevis that blooms, you may have heard of that one a lot because that red tide or brown tide is, is one that produces an aerosolized toxin that does close down the beaches because then the air, water, the, 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 the air quality is effective. And that's because the toxin itself goes into the atmosphere. How about wastewater? Wastewater? There is an effect. Um, we have a lot of dilution here in the coastal ocean. You need a pretty closed embayment to see some of that stuff. We see some direct effects in Monterey Bay. It's been a little harder to show it um, in Southern California, but there, I'm sure there is an effect. Uh, there's been a lot of work done in the LA area to look at that, but there's no smoking gun just yet. We know that, that nutrients contribute to these blooms. The algae need nutrients, but it's always the combination. And you know, what is that? What is that sweet spot? What exactly is the right combination of things that they need? The modeling I didn't I didn't show you all the sausage making there, but it's. Um, it's really built, built on the relationship between upwelling and Sudnichia because it blooms a lot when the water is cold. But we also now know, especially post-blob, that there is an association with warm water. Um, we've done a lot more experiments looking at the optimal growth of Sudnichia with temperature. It seems to peak around 23 degrees Celsius, which is really high. A lot of phytoplankton, particularly diatoms, don't do that. They peak a lot lower. So um, while nutrients are actually a big part of this story, and it's a very complicated story, it does look like some of these Sudnichia species are very competitive at high temperatures relative to other diatoms. And so as oceans warm, we could expect to see more, and, and people feel like the blob was this dress rehearsal for, for global warming, and maybe it was. Um, and just the fact that Sudnichia thrived in a way we had never seen before in those warm waters is a little scary. So the question is, have we found um, biological agents that might kill these blooms before they get started? Maybe different kinds of um, bacterial, other, other, other agents. There are ways to do it. Um, they've mostly been practiced in water treatment facilities when you have like a cyanobacterial bloom, like microcystis, which is the one you see in Lake Erie that shuts down the water supply there. Um, they can be used to good effect in those sorts of closed systems. You can use algicidal methods that kill bacteria. You can use chemical methods like um, hydrogen peroxide, um, all different kinds of potassium agents and magnesium. But the, the, the bottom line is, how do you really apply something like that to the coastal ocean without affecting the rest of the biota? Um, is the question about whether the plumes of runoff are connected to harmful algal blooms? So, and you're thinking locally or anywhere in general. Um, so it's, it's, it has been tough to make that link definitively. There's, there's, as you saw, there's such a, an array of, of organisms here, and they all respond differently to nutrients. A lot of dinoflagellates do respond to that kind of um, pulse of nutrients. Um, diatoms, and Sudnichi in particular, is its own beast. And what we have found is that it becomes most toxic when that silica or silicic acid is actually depleted relative to other nutrients like nitrate or phosphate. And so in that case, we think there's, there's, there is an interesting sweet spot where it, it competes really well when there's not a lot of silicic acid. But it needs nitrate. There's nitrogen in demoic acid. So you start to find that there is a complexity to this that's not just, is there runoff with pollution in it or not? Um, that these organisms have evolved to respond to these different 
combinations of nutrients in really different and subtle ways. And with every bloom, it's, it's a slightly different story, such that we can't say we have a smoking gun. Yeah, and I've gotten that question a lot with the, the blooms that we had this year. Can you swim? And there's no reason you can't. There are some reports of some people getting some skin irritation if the concentrations of the algae are too high. Um, there is an association, particularly if there was a big rain event, and then you do have a red tide, which does happen sometimes off of um, in Monterey Bay. This happens a lot. You also have a lot of bacteria in the water at the same time. So in that case, I would say if, if this red tide seems at all associated with a rain event, probably not the best idea. Why does Pseudonychia produce domoic acid? We have no idea. And um, there's, there's the fact that it's an amino acid. It looks like an amino acid. But there's another part I didn't get into, which is that it has this way that it can bind to iron. And iron is a really important micronutrient in the ocean for algae, and they need it in order to actually take up nitrate. So there's a lot of theories out there about this iron binding capacity and whether that plays an evolutionary role in sort of the sequestration of iron to algae because they need it. The problem there, uh, it breaks down a lot, is that Pseudonychia push a lot of domoic acid out of the cell. There's always a lot of dissolved domoic acid in the water, so we're not sure, you know, you can't get the iron back once you push that out. There's also theories about copper. It binds well to copper. Copper's toxic to algae. Maybe it's because they want to get the toxin away. So it's hard to imagine a chemical that can both bring things to you and take things away from you. It's very complicated. Um, people have looked at anti-predation. Doesn't seem to hold all that well. Anti-grazing. Um, competition with other algae. Doesn't really hold up that well, at least in the lab. So a lot of theories have been, been tested, but nobody, nobody knows the answer yet. Thank you very much for playing. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.